It's hard to be seated after that, isn't it? I'm lucky I get to stay standing. I feel like I got to let my heart rate come back down a little bit. I love that we sang that this morning because I need that truth in September just as much as I need it at Easter. That Jesus Christ is alive. That death was arrested. That I have eternal life no matter what I face in this life, no matter how this life ends, because Jesus has conquered death. And so today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 28. Go ahead and find that now because I want you to follow along with us when we do these things. One, I think think it's good for you to see the word, but two, it lets you check if I made any typos or skipped anything up on the screen. (laughs) So go ahead and find that because what we're going to see here is that he's talking about how Jesus is a better sacrifice. Neil just mentioned that, how there are centuries and millennia of the Israel, the people in Israel, doing these sacrifices. Blood with the old covenant and bulls and goats and sheep and all of these things. And then how Jesus is a better sacrifice. Well, why were they doing these sacrifices in the first place? You see, one of the things that they realized is that they had a death problem. And the reality is that we've had a death problem since like page two of human history. When Adam and Eve first sinned against God. First rebelled, first decided to do what they want to do instead of what God had asked them to do and found out that when you disobey God, even just a little bit, even just once, it separates us from God. And because God is the source of all life, there is no life apart from him that ultimately led to their physical and spiritual death. And all of us, short of Christ coming back, are going to face death someday. And I don't say that to be morbid, but because I've I've noticed that there's times where we, we, we almost get used to it. And we say things like, you know, death is a part of life. And and I get why we say that. I, I mean I understand that. And yet, in a very real sense, No, it's not. (laughs) Death and life are complete opposites. Death was never the plan in the first place. But because of our rebellion against God, because of that disobedience, because of what the Bible calls sin, when I don't live up to my own standard of what I ought to be doing, never mind even God's standard for me, that death comes in. And now Hebrews 9 is going to take the Old Testament and the New Testament And draw them together to show us how the solution to our death problem is actually one specific death. One better sacrifice. So to do that, I'm actually going to back up one verse into what we looked at last week. Because last week we saw how all of those sacrifices could never cleanse your conscience. They're just a constant reminder that you need another sacrifice because you messed up again. But that Jesus could. And then in verse 15, the end of our passage last week, he says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Okay, so we're talking about a new covenant and a first covenant, a new covenant and an old covenant. He says that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So all I want you to catch for this moment is that the word covenant in each of those places and the word testament are actually the same Greek word. All of those are the word diatheke, which can mean a testament or a covenant. So this is actually the kind of place where we get our language like Old Testament. Old diatheke 
and new diatheke. It's why your Bible is not called part one and part two. <laughs> it's the old covenant, the Old Testament, and the new covenant, the new testament. And the thing that divides right down the middle is Jesus Christ. That as we've seen, all of these things have been pointing forward to Jesus, and everything else is built on him. And so look at how he continues then in verses 16 through 18 of our passage this morning. He says that where there's a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So the reason that our English translations are using the word testament instead of covenant here is to help us pick up on the idea that Hebrews is making a play on words. That this is like a last will and testament. That's why he says there has to be the death of a testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So essentially what he's saying is, some of God's promises function like a last will and testament where it requires the death of Christ for that promise to come true. So he's kind of just doing like, hey, so think about this like a last will and testament. I mean, if you've ever read one of those, you know they, they don't mean anything until that person dies. That Jesus actually had to die. It says necessity. There's necessity for death. Not even the first covenant without, was without blood. So this one definitely has the necessity of death for all of the promises that we've been talking about to be held true. So then he goes on in verses 19 and 20 to basically summarize that first covenant. So what you see in these next few verses is, is like the Cliff's Notes version of Exodus 24. Like Exodus 24 for dummies. It's all right here. So if you read this and it's like, I have no idea what he's talking about. No sweat. <laughs> you can go read Exodus 24. It will explain some of this. But I'll point out a couple specific pieces for you. Because he says that when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. Okay, so this is the moment he comes back down the mountain with everything that God had given him. Everything in the tabernacle is prepared. And this is the day we all say we're in on God's covenant. This Mosaic covenant. So when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. So the picture here is that this is the moment that God's people have come into a covenant with him. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them into freedom. He's telling them, this is my picture. This is my desire. This is how it's going to work. But did you catch something a little strange in there? Because we love the language when we hear blood of the covenant. And like Neil just reminded us, when we do the Lord's Supper and we hear Jesus say, now this cup is the new covenant in my blood. But notice what it says that Moses did. It says that, when he was dedicating all these things, when they were agreeing on all this together, he took the blood of bulls and goats and sprinkled it on the people. Is that weird? Is it just me? <laughs> like, let's just own that for a second. That's a little bit strange. Could you imagine if, as you were walking in here today, my, my friend Nick was one of the ushers out in the hallway. What if Nick just splashed you with a little something red? Oh, what was that? Goat's blood. Okay, I am in the wrong building. <laughs> this is not where I meant to be today, right? That's strange. So we're going to do that just a little bit this morning. No, I, 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, 
It's empty. Don't worry about it. We know that sounds really weird to us, right? And yet the Bible uses this language all the time. Some of our favorite hymns we sing, I'm washed in the blood. Okay, bro, keep it to yourself. (laughs) There's power in the blood. Mm. Peter addresses one of his letters to his friends, to those who are in Christ and sprinkled by his blood. Wait a minute, though, because a lot of those people had never even met Jesus. So they hadn't actually been. So, so what are we actually talking about here? Why aren't we sprinkling each other with goat's blood on the way into church on a Sunday morning? Well, see, the blood is really a picture of life. It worked as a symbol that without blood, you don't have life. If, if you are alive, your blood is pumping. If your blood is flowed out, you no longer have life. And so it also becomes an image of death. So it's not just a little cut. You know, it's not like if you were standing under the cross when Jesus died and one drip fell on you, then, hey, you don't even know who that is, but all of a sudden you're forgiven. It's not magic blood. It's a picture of death, of life being poured out, of the ultimate sacrifice being made. And so that picture gets carried now into Hebrews where he's been telling us we have a better high priest, we have a better sacrifice, and death was necessary. Which begs the question, Why? Why is death necessary for salvation? Well, I got exactly that question from a couple here a few weeks ago. We were just sitting at a table out in the atrium and and chatting about this. And I got to tell you, this is one of the things that I love about God. And I love that we get to do this at Horizon. Like God loves questions. When I have a question like that, I want to dig deeper. I want to know, how does that work? And as we were sitting there chatting about it that day, it's like I I gave kind of my best off-the-cuff answer, but I also knew it was coming up in Hebrews. (laughs) So I got to do that like, let me do a little research and get back to you. Because I ask questions too. And I I don't know what you've heard or what your experience has been, but another buddy of mine was telling me this past week that for him, he, he realized he spent so much time trying to get all of his questions answered before he was willing to put his trust in Christ And then he hit this moment that he realized, I'm probably always going to have questions. But if I'm certain that Jesus is who he said he was, if I believe that he's the Savior, what's actually stopping me from saying I trust him as my Savior? And so he took that moment and said, I'm going to trust him as my Savior, and I'm going to keep asking questions. And guys, that's like a huge part of what we are here for. And, And I do that too. I'm asking questions all the time. When I'm studying this, before I share it with you, half of what you hear is probably because I had a question about it and had to dig in. And so I just want you to know that, like, even right now, like this week, there are individuals, there are one-on-ones, and there are equipping study groups taking exactly these passages that we do on the weekend and going back into a group of people to ask the questions that we didn't have time for this morning, to dig into those things and say, what does that really mean? What what, what else is deeper there? How How do I apply that to my specific situation? And so every week, we're actually putting out what we call a pathway guide. And so there's both a video that goes with this, that often me or Chad, we've had Neil in there before, sharing a little bit more from what we heard in the service, but also this written pathway guide that you can get on the website, on the app, or I pulled this hard copy right out of the program from this morning. It's right on the back of the message notes, and it's like our best five questions that we could think of to help you chew on this passage. And then some really practical ways to kind of apply it this week. So I I just want you to know about those tools because 
I know there have been places in my life where when I ask a tough question, somebody just says, well, I don't know, you just got to believe. And there's a piece of that that I'm okay with, because like, I know I can't fully understand God. He is so far beyond me, and so if he says it, I'm going to believe it. But there's also something that I think shuts down in me a little bit that says, I'm trying to believe it, but I'm confused, and I just have more questions. And this is the kind of question that we get to ask. And you realize the audience of Hebrews is asking this question, because he's not telling them, you don't need a high priest. Right? He's saying, you have a better high priest. He's not telling them sacrifices don't matter. He's saying you need a better sacrifice. You still need a death. So why is death necessary for salvation? Why do we talk about the cross? Why is Good Friday and Easter such a big deal? You see, it goes back to that whole thing with Adam and Eve. That the reality is, for them, but for all of us, sin, right? The things that I've done wrong, on accident and on purpose unwittingly and knowing full well, separate me from the only source of life. And then one way, if you think about it, even the fact that anybody is breathing right now, if you go back to Hebrews 1, it says it's because Jesus is sustaining all of creation all the time. That our very life is God's mercy to us while he gives us time to turn to him. Because we've got a death problem. That the consequences of our sin is separation from God. And, and here's the truth. God is a merciful God. And he doesn't want to punish us. But God is also just. And he has to punish sin. And the Bible essentially teaches that there is no sin that goes unpunished. Like, whatever you think you got away with, whatever you're frustrated that somebody else got away with, whatever you didn't even realize like was one of those things so you don't even know you got away with it, Right? The Bible is going to teach that there is no sin that goes unpunished. The only question is who takes the punishment. So my wife and I were talking about this the other day because I'm thinking, okay, what if somebody else was willing to take your death penalty for you? And so because she loves me, I asked her, you know, would you, would you take my death penalty for my sin? Would you be willing to do that for me? I forget what she said. <laughs> I know you were waiting for it. Like, how much does she really love him, you know? Only here's the problem. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. She has her own death penalty. As much as I love her, we've got to own that. And if she pays her death penalty first, she can't come back and pay mine. She's dead. And I don't say that to be crass, but just like in a strictly logical level, it's literally impossible for anybody else to get you off the hook. Like, if only, if only there was somebody who had, like, an infinite amount of life who could pay all of the death penalties at once. You feel me? You get what I'm talking about? I mean, that takes you back to Hebrews chapter 7, where, where some translations, they, they put this, that Jesus has indestructible life. He has infinite life to pay every penalty. And he knew it. And he told us that's why he was here. In fact, just in the book of Luke alone, there are at least three times before his death that Jesus told his friends and followers exactly why it was necessary for him to die. I marked them all with my little orange sticky notes. We don't have time for all of them. <laughs> but there are at least three in just Luke alone before he dies, and there are at least three more in Luke alone after he rises again. So imagine the face of the angel 
when he speaks to the friends of Jesus, some of his closest friends on earth, who are confused. Because they were already confused that he died. Now they're confused that the tomb is empty. What in the world is going on here? And the angel looks at them and says, he is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And not long after that, Jesus himself, in the presence of those friends and a few more, literally showed them how he has fulfilled all of those shadows, all of those copies, all of those old sacrifices. It says he took them through the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Catch that word, remissions, and now go back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Hebrews 9 is using the exact same words as Jesus when he said it was necessary for my death and my resurrection so that you could tell people about remission of sins. See, that remission, that is a word that means that sin is completely removed, completely taken away. And this is so important to understand because when you think about what it would be like in the community of Israel, for the Jewish people, for all of those years, that every time you sin, you bring a bull, you bring a goat, you bring a lamb, and your hand is resting on that animal as you confess what it is that you've done. And the priests slaughter it. That innocent, perfect lamb that took death in your place. And at that moment, you have the distinct impression of just how deadly sin really is. Just how serious your sin really is. So is it a guilt trip? I mean, we are guilty. But think about that moment again. Because the sin has already happened. Nothing you can do to change that. But at this moment, when the innocent substitute dies, that's the moment you're forgiven. The moment that it is most clear to you just how desperately you actually need forgiveness from God is actually the same moment you have received it. That that is the moment you get the distinct impression of how great the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You see just how much Jesus loves you. Which is why verse 23 
Hebrews takes all of this and says, here's, here's what you want to do. Therefore, it's necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What he's reminding them is that all of these sacrifices have been a shadow and a copy. Any other way, I, I know we don't have an Ark of a Covenant anymore. This is, this is a replicant. You know, this is, this is not the real thing. It's a facsimile. I touched it. I didn't die. But whatever it is in your life, whatever those copies of the world that seem like they would give us joy, they seem like they're the thing that makes us blessed, they seem like this is what life really is, they're copies. They fall short. And Hebrews is telling us, choose Christ over the copies. We saw this all over chapter 8. Choose Christ over the copies because these things are just shadows. I loved how Chad put it that week that, like, God has Jesus before time began. He is the substance that's casting that shadow. He is what this copy is of. But I want to see the original. I don't know about you. This could just be me and my bad attitude. But when I go to a museum and you see this thing under glass and it says like 3500 BC, and it's like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. I, can, I, how do I, can I get the glass off of here? I want, to, I want to hold it. I want to run my fingers on these things carved into stone. And, and then as I'm looking, there's a little plate at the bottom. It says, Facsimile. Nah. What else do they got here? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just something in my head, I guess. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I guess I'm not that impressed after. I want to see the original. I want to hold it. I, I want to look at it. Jesus says you can. That the promises from all of those centuries, all of the copies, all of the shadows were pointing to him. And now you say, I want to see the original. I want to look him in the face. I want to know that his presence is with me no matter what I am facing every day. I want to know that his forgiveness sticks and that I'm never out of his love. And Jesus says, you can. Because he's not a facsimile. He is the real thing. He is not the copy. And so we choose Christ. And so he goes on then in the next couple of verses to show them how this plays out. By saying that Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Okay, so he's saying Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle. He doesn't need a tent that somebody sewed together. He doesn't need a temple. He doesn't need that building of bricks that men laid on top of other bricks. Okay, saying Jesus doesn't have to go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. Because he is in the presence of God himself in the heavenlies. And that's what it was all pointing to. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, what he's got in mind here is what's called the Day of Atonement. If you go home and look at your calendar, you'll see that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was just a couple of days ago. And about 10 days before that is the Feast of Trumpets, and the whole thing in between is a very solemn time because they know this is the one time, the only time of the year, that only one person can go into the most holy place. 
through the curtain that was like three to six inches thick to keep them separated from the presence of God. Once a year, only the high priest. And it started with two goats. One that would be sacrificed, one that would be released, the scapegoat who would carry the sins away. And every year, they would feel this incredible tension as the high priest enters the most holy place. Exactly what he's describing right here. Hebrews 9 is talking about Yom Kippur. This incredible tension waiting for him to appear again. Waiting for the high priest to come back out. Because we did all the stuff and I confessed all my sin and now he goes in through the curtain and then what do the rest of us do while we wait? He's kind of been in there for a while. I mean, I know I said a lot of stuff. I don't know if he has to repeat everything like word for word back to God, but like I hope he comes out. So, oh, thank goodness when he comes back out. Like they're worried. What if he dies in there? What if we don't get forgiveness? He's standing before God on behalf of the people. What if God turns him down? What if God changed his mind? What? I don't know. And there's anxiety waiting for him to appear, to come back through the curtain. But you see, Hebrews is giving us a different picture. Hebrews is giving us a picture not of a high priest who has to go every year to do this again. That when he came out, they would say, oh, oh thank goodness, okay, we're good for another year. This year, I'm going to, uh, seriously, dude, I am not going to sin this year. Like, that was too stressful. One year later, how long until he comes out, <laughs> you know? He's saying, is that that way for Jesus? That's why he keeps saying, like, it's like, you, you look back, it's like every chapter he's saying, once for all, once for all, one for all time, one sacrifice, better sacrifice. So here's what we get to do instead. Here's what I would encourage you. Eagerly wait for Christ to appear. See, because when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two. There's no longer anything separating us from the very presence of God because of Jesus Christ. And you know, something happened this week that just totally helped me think about like, what is that, what is that like to eagerly wait? My daughter's birthday was two days ago, but you would have thought it was like a month ago because of when the countdown started. <laughs> it's like, I think this is the longest, it's almost my birthday countdown she's ever had. And every day it's like, Dad, yes, my dear, that's how I always say to her, <laughs> 17 more days. Okay, get till what? Oh, right, right. Dad, what? 16 more days. Dad, what? 15 more days. She walks up to me with this iPad. They do a lot of their schoolwork on there. I'm like, she's going to show me. Okay, you know what this is? A clock? I don't know. It's a countdown to my birthday. I'm like, that thing's still in double digits. Like, come on. <laughs> We're leaving the iPad on for two more weeks? She was eagerly waiting for her birthday to appear. Something special that gets you so excited because you, know you know it's coming. And it's going to be so good. And as I watched her, I thought, that's the kind of energy that I want to have for Christ to appear. You know, we don't, we don't have the exact countdown. We don't know the exact day. But I firmly believe, and I think the New Testament speaks this way, that he could come back before I finish this sentence. Hey, I finished that sentence, which means he could come back before I finish this sentence. He could come back before we finish this service. He could come back before you get home today. He could be back before the Bills beat the Dolphins this afternoon. Like, I don't know when it's going to be. But the New Testament teaches us that while we don't know the day or the hour, we do know that it's imminent. All of the letters, all of the things that you read in here, everybody's acting like 
guys, it could be today. Even as they saw friends and loved ones dying around them, people who loved Jesus going on to heaven, it didn't faze them. They still knew it could happen today. In fact, if you look at these last two verses of our chapter, verse 27 and 28, look at how he puts this together. He's going to say one thing that sounds super scary, and he drops it almost just like, you know, just just a quick reminder for you, because Christ is going to appear. Look what he says. Verse 27, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So I don't know what happens to you when you read verse 27. I I know there's times where I read them like, die once and then judgment. Okay. Uh, You ever have that moment where you're like, well, I hope he doesn't come back right now then. Right? So rather than a guilt trip, let me just say, if you think to yourself, what if he had come back at 1030 last night? What if he did come back right now? What if he comes back at 2.15 tomorrow afternoon or seven months from now when you sort of forgot about all this and you're just kind of cruising through life? You know, when you have that little feeling of like, well, not right now, Jesus. Well, I got to fix this first. Well, I got to straighten up first. Here's what I encourage you with. It could be that's something that the Spirit is convicting you on. Like if, if there's something there, hey, take it to him. Because in confidence in Christ, you know you are already forgiven And as we'll see next week, he wants to help you grow. If you're not sure you've ever trusted Christ as your forgiver, well, just do that today. Like, I don't know when he's coming back, so why wait, right? Maybe today's the day you say, then I want to trust you, Jesus. Don't tell me, tell him. I mean, you can tell me too, I'll I'll be excited, but tell him, I trust you as my forgiver. Because the way Hebrews uses that, he told us back in chapter 4 that we boldly approach the throne. It's a throne of grace. First John 4 tells us that we have confidence. He uses that word. We are bold in the day of judgment because we know we're forgiven. Because sin has already been dealt with. Which is why verse 28 is so sweet that it says that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Not some of them, not part of them, all of them. Past, present, and future forgiven through his better sacrifice To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin. He doesn't have to deal with your sin when he gets back. He already dealt with it. So when he comes back now, it's in victory. It's in celebration. You know, there's there's a guy here at Horizon, actually. um, Nick is a friend of mine. And I've been in one of these equipping groups with Nick. We've been chewing on Hebrews together with some other guys. Honestly... If you go on our site and you look up groups, you'll see some stuff there, but it's not all there. So if you're interested in getting connected, there's a certain time of week you're not seeing on there, please come talk to me. I would love to help you get plugged into that. Because spending time with Nick, I I feel like it's one of the best ways that I've picked up on how to actually live that way. How to to be eager from day to day. Because there's so much down here that gets me distracted, it, it gets me focused. It's not bad stuff necessarily, but you just feel like, you know something that's not right with the car can like wreck your whole day and it's like man if Jesus comes back right now I literally don't need new tires right you know just the simplicity of some of that and so Nick said that what he does is once in a while he just reminds himself to look at the sky and just think to himself these could be the clouds that part 
These could be the clouds that part and Jesus could appear. And I kind of smiled, you know, first time I heard him say that, but then I noticed it was like sticking with me through the week. You know, I'm mowing the lawn, I'm looking down here. And just... On second thought, I don't, maybe I don't even have to finish mowing the lawn. These could be the clouds, right? Like it could be today. And I tell you, a couple years ago, I had the chance to be in Israel. And there's a place in Israel called the Mount of Olives. And what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus returned to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah tells us that he is going to return from heaven. When he comes back, he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. That there is literally a place on earth where you can like kick the dirt that Jesus is going to stand on. That he stood on it before and he will stand on it again. And so I want you to look at this blue sky. Literally, those are the clouds that could part. There's just a wisp right there. Literally, that is the sky that is going to open up when Jesus returns. And so I would tell you, if you ever get the chance to go to Israel, it is just awesome to stand there and realize, like, well, if he starts coming, I should probably move. <laughs> this is his spot. Like, it's real. And the whole New Testament is written this way with the confidence that it is real. That he really is returning. That even though we don't know exactly when it is, even though we feel like today is difficult, yesterday was difficult, I don't know what tomorrow holds, I do know Jesus Christ is coming back. I want you to live like you are eager for Christ to appear. You know, even this week as I've been thinking about this, I realize that you know, we, we're going to talk like this because I, I really believe it. And I think the New Testament is written this way. That it could be today. But that's not, not an exaggeration. And yet, if I said that six months ago, it, it wasn't. It wasn't six months ago. And I know that some of you are acutely aware of the death problem that we talked about earlier in this message this week. That we know our lives don't go on forever. That maybe you've lost someone that you love this week. You know, I got a message last night about a friend who they think is within 24 hours of going home. And so I thought to myself, you know, like, I'm speaking this promise. I'm reading these words. I'm taking this to heart that we're waiting for him to appear. And as sad as I am as I think about that, I know where this friend's confidence is, that it is in Jesus Christ. That there is a mansion waiting for him that Jesus has personally customized for him. And get this. I, I love this. First Thessalonians tells us, if for any reason you happen to go home before Jesus comes back, you're not going to miss out. You get to come with him. All those loved ones that we may have lost who are in Christ as their forgiver, they're coming with him when he appears. And so I want to encourage you to live that way this week. And on the, on the pathway that I mentioned before, at the bottom there's a try it section that just has a few ideas of how to do that. I'll, I'll let you look at that in more detail, but I just wanted to mention a couple of them to you. Because one of them, it says to listen to a worship set on Horizons app. And so there's actually, we even got a nice little QR code. If it's hard for you to find, you can just scan the QR code. It'll take you straight there. Because what I found literally this week, yesterday morning, kind of struggling with this, like I know this truth, but I'm not feeling this truth. Turn on worship music, sing to the Lord, 
just listen. Let him remind you. And so that's, that's one great way to eagerly wait for him. And there's a, a worship set on there called God's Sacrifice that is perfect for this week that our team has put together just for you to enjoy, to help you focus on what he's done and the fact that he's coming back. And another one that's right under that is to share, to share this hope with somebody else who may not have it, maybe needs it, maybe doesn't know God yet. And I'm going to show you a video in just a second of Ken Kington telling us about this men's group that we put together. Just like the women's event a couple of weeks ago, we're, we're calling this one Four Critical Decisions. This one's for the guys. And the idea is that we want to put tools in your toolbox to help you invite a friend, a family member, somebody who maybe doesn't have this kind of hope, and give them just a really comfortable way to start to connect to who God is that might help them grow to a place that they're eager for him to come back to. So I'll let Ken tell you about it, and then we'll close in prayer. Hi, Horizon. It's Ken Kington, and I'm so looking forward to being back there. You know, over 30 years of performing stand-up comedy and speaking at, at thousands of corporate events and motivational, inspirational events, I met some of the most amazing leaders from all walks of life, heads of departments in Ivy League schools. I met the CEOs, COOs, and CFOs of 80 of the Fortune 100 companies in the world at one event. And that was just one event of thousands of corporate events I've done. I've sat down and had dinner with Super Bowl winning coaches, Heisman Trophy winners, and the list goes on and on. But what I love to do in those situations is listen. How did you get there? What was the key? What was the secret? And I discovered it wasn't abilities. And it wasn't even opportunities, it was actually decisions that these amazing leaders make. And I found over the years that they started to fall in one of four critical categories that was the key to unlock success. So whatever your frustration or maybe your desire is, maybe it's relational or financial or vocational, I promise one of these four critical decisions will be the key to unlock those. We're going to look at one each week, starting on September 26th and Monday mornings uh, on the 27th and moving forward for four weeks. You can make them all, or if you just make one, that's fine. But I promise you're going to walk away with some amazing insights. It's going to be at Horizon. You can go to their website right now and get a few more details, but register as soon as possible because the series Four Critical Decisions starts September 26th and 27th. It's Sunday nights at 8 o'clock, Monday mornings at 6.09. They're interchangeable. Come to whatever you can. Be there whenever you can, but don't miss it. So that's next week. And I can tell you, um, I get a little behind the scenes. So I have already seen the content. I've looked through it with Ken. And I'm inviting two friends. So maybe that's just a word of encouragement to you. If there's somebody you've been thinking about, don't tell yourself, ah, it'll probably be a while before Jesus gets here. Invite him now. You know, come out to that. And then you're probably noticing that I'm, I'm holding a little something weird here. You know what this is? This is called a shofar. This is a ram's horn trumpet. When you, when you hear them talk about trumpets in the Old Testament, they're usually talking about the shofar. The reason I brought this is because this is the sound of the trumpet that it says we'll hear when Christ returns. And I was, I was laughing the other day. I don't know where this stuff comes from, but my, my daughter has a shofar too. And so when her, her birthday finally got there, we're all standing at the bottom of the stairs, all the decorations, she hasn't seen any of it, and we're just waiting for Belle to come down. And it's like, Belle! And she's still not coming. So I sent one of the boys up to check on her. He comes back down, he says, we'll know when she's coming. She'll give a signal. 
And like, seriously, like 15 seconds later, we hear a shofar blow from upstairs. Like, okay, so my daughter is not the Messiah, but I was like, that is too good. Because we were I was like, we can't wait for her to come. And there she is. She's the woman of the hour, you know. And so I thought, as you're leaving today, I want to give you this sound. So just in case, as you're walking out to your car, you hear the shofar blow. You see the skies part. You know what you're watching for and you know what you're listening for. It'll be longer, it'll be louder, there will be more of them, but you listen for that sound because I am telling you the promise of Scripture that Christ will appear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your patience with us and your grace towards us and for speaking your word to us. Lord, thank you for all the shadows and all the copies that pointed to Christ and that we stand on this side of history with such a clear understanding of how he solves our death problem. Lord, I know that every one of us is dealing with different things this week, things that would have us look down and, and lose our focus on you. And so I just pray that e even if it's, it's a little goofy, that the sound of this shofar, that the sound of your words this morning would remind us to look up. Because Jesus, I'll just tell you, we're excited. We're eager for you to appear. And we'll pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you for coming. If he doesn't come back, we'll see you next week. <laughs>